Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and joining me in the virtual studio today are once again Dr. Moto. He's back. Like me, he's a shrink, a psychiatrist, and we've also got Dr. Trainer Wheels. Now, I don't know why I'm calling her Trainer Wheels still, because I think we decided some time ago that we had to drop the trainer, because she's now Ridgie Didge. She's no longer a medical student. She's a doctor at one of Melbourne's major hospitals. And also joining us in the studio today, who we'll chat to a little later, is Dr. David Chapman. David is a psychiatrist all the way from Darwin, who is down in Melbourne doing a sabbatical, and he's going to tell us about uh, the mental health world up in Australia's most northern capital city and the challenges of providing mental health up there. We've got lots lots of other stuff to cover as well as that. I've got a little bit of news. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the pop-up mental health clinics that uh, were announced this week. I'm also going to tell you a little bit about cute kittens. Now, I teased you on our Facebook with the cutest kitten I could find, um, but I'll tell you what the link to that is. And then we're going to talk um, towards the end all about what's happening in the hospitals with COVID. We might touch on some of the big issues as well, like the... Um, the, the issues around mandatory vaccination and, of course, the issues around living in a two-tiered society, which happened as of Friday night for those of us in Melbourne. We are now living in a society where we have different rights depending on our vaccination statement. We might also touch on the law. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Let's say g'day to everyone. Uh, Dr. Trainer Wheels, what are we calling you these days? Uh, I like training wheels. I don't want to change it. It's very dear to me. True. It's the name, you know, it's your birth name. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it'd be like going to Deepol and, you know, it just wouldn't be right. <laughs> And Moto, what about you, man? Yeah, we're all uh, trainees of life, really. Um, yeah, look, great to see you, um, um, Dr. Doolittle and um, Training Wheels and um, Panel Beater and, of course, Dr. Chapman. Um, look, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, back on the Zoomer, Sunday morning, radiotherapy, life can't get better. Hey, I had a weird experience last night. Let me just briefly tell you before I tell you my news. Last night I had a dream of travelling. And it felt so real. I don't, I'm one of these people who normally doesn't remember my dreams. But this morning I woke up and I'd, I'd been at this sort of amusement park somewhere overseas. I was with two of my really good friends and it seemed to have gone for ages. And I honestly woke up feeling like I'd come back from a holiday and feeling like my uh, quarantine, my, not my quarantine, my lockdown living had ended. How cool is that? Did you feel good or sad after? I think I'd wake up feeling heartbroken. No, no, I felt really good. Although I did feel a little bit guilty because, I hope, in fact, this is dangerous because my girlfriend's probably listening. But in it, I was with two of my really good friends and I was flirting with these other women and I, <laughs> and I woke up wondering to myself, is it, did I cheat? You know, now, it was just a dream holiday, but was I cheating? I've got in trouble before from my girlfriend when she's dreamed I'm cheating. And, you know, and I've had to say, can we just establish something that this was your dream, not mine? But this time I was clearly flirting with two girls throughout the whole dream. And uh, so I think, I think if she's listening to the show this morning, she might have slept in. I'm in a bit of trouble, do you reckon? 
A bit of harmless flirting surely isn't too bad. Yeah, it was, it was harmless. It was harmless. I was just, I was just being my usual flirtatious self. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, hey, talking of things cute, is flirting cute? I don't know it is. Um, did you get the link why I put on our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on Triple R, the cutest kitten you've ever seen? Did you, did you guys see the news too? Basically what it was, was there was a study that came out of the Origin, which is our youth mental health service, the famous one run by uh, Professor Pat McGorry, Australian of the Year and all-round legend, um, of 96 people that they've followed for a long time, showing that those who had had, who'd had serological evidence of toxoplasmosis gondii, which is an infection that you catch from cats, not just cute kittens, had a 3.6 times higher chance of having schizophrenia. Now, I suspect... Trainer wheels, you probably haven't heard this research before, but I bet Moto has. Have you heard the toxoplasmosis story before Moto? Yes, I have, yes. Yeah, it's been going on for about a decade, but basically what it is is that there's certain infection. You know, people have been looking for pathological causes for schizophrenia for decades. They look at the size of ventricles in the brain, all sorts of other things in the brain, dopamine levels in the brain, and it's really hard to pinpoint anything that specifically points to developing psychosis. Everyone thinks psychosis is a biological illness, but to find the actual pathology has been a mystery. And one of the clues has been infections for a long time. For example, um, if the mum has flu in her second trimester, it's a slight increase. And toxoplasmosis gondii, which exists in cats, has been going on, as I say, for about or maybe even longer than a decade. And there's been all these little hints. The biggest hint is that rats who have toxoplasmosis gondii behave in a way that's considered slightly it's, it's considered abnormal and a marker for psychosis. For example, cats with toxoplasmosis gondii, you might have read in the past, they lose their ability to be scared of the smell of cat u- urine. So rats will walk blithely around areas with cats and risk getting caught by the cats because they lose their fear of it. It's quite fascinating. And there's been other evidence as well. Um, and, uh, but there's, there's as many studies saying that there's no link to schizophrenia as there are studies saying that there are. So this one from Origin, because it was a long-term study, was quite interesting. Anyway, it's just another little pointer in the maze of trying to figure out the pathology of schizophrenia. Did it excite you, being a bit of a researcher, uh, uh, Moto? Uh, yeah, look, I think, you know, any links and um, any, uh, um, you know, stone that could be turned that might um, give us uh, some um, hints on how to solve and um, help um, um, treat this condition is definitely uh, very much very important. Um, but uh, what, what probably I find most eerie about toxoplasmosis gondi is that a lot of people can get it and most of the time it's asymptomatic. Yeah. Um, and there have been, you know, studies that have estimated that maybe up to 40% of the world's population have had it at some time. They just didn't know it, right? So, um, it, it and, varies um, from country to country, depending on how the right. countries, um, you know, various factors. Some countries, it's as low as 15%. and other countries, it's as high as 90. Countries that have a lot of cats and not much hygiene around their cats. But the eerie thing about toxoplasmosis gondii and all parasites is the thought that a parasite could be living in your body, right, for all that time without you knowing about it. It's not doing any harm. It's not causing you schizophrenia, right? It's not passing through your placenta to your baby, to the developing fetus, um, but it's just there, just, you know, watching Netflix with you, just having breakfast with you, you know, enjoying the smashed arbor that you're feeding it. Isn't sorry. that an eerie thought? See, right. Sorry, sorry, trainer wheels, go ahead. I just said gross. 
<laughs> See, that doesn't bother me in the slightest because we've known about the gut biome. So you know, our gut biome has more cells than we have human cells. So your body actually exists of... You know, if it's number by number, you are more non-human than you are human. So you have more virus particles and bacteria particles and everything in your gut biome than you do human cells. So, you know, we're not really, you know, this idea of us being these, you know, individual humans is, is an absolute nonsense. We're a collection of a whole lot of different um, cells and DNA and RNA and whatnot. Um, you know, so uh, I, it doesn't bother me at all. I love the fact that when I subscribe to all of these streaming services, I'm I'm subscribing on behalf of a whole lot of different organisms. You know, I, I, I just wish I could get a vote from the various bacteria. You know, what are we going to watch tonight? Are we going to watch an episode of Bosch or are we going to watch an old episode of West Wing? It should be a vote. Anyway, let me also tell you a quick bit of news because I don't want to drag us on too long with uh, um, strange existences that we all live. The other thing you might have read about in the last week is the pop-up mental health clinics. Now, just to give you some background. So the Victorian government is spending 22 million bucks on 20 pop-up mental health clinics across Victoria with 90 dedicated clinicians. This is on top of the 225 million they've already allocated to pandemic-related mental health. And of course, on top of the three point whatever it is, seven billion dollars that they've allocated through the Royal Commission and uh, it includes a program to support parenting and the gist of it is is that the you know we've all heard about the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system and the billions that are flowing from it but all of the Royal Commission stuff is essentially medium to long-term improvements and of course the pandemic has raised all these issues about the shadow pandemic of mental health and it's uh, it's another response from the Victorian government to um to try and uh, fix things up, um, I, I thought it was—I thought it was pretty damn good. Uh, what did you guys think? Uh, who wants to go first? Let me see a hand. Moto. Yeah, look, great, great initiative. Um, you know, there's certainly a lot of people um, struggling out there, and um, sometimes, um, what I see at least, the most tricky part for a lot of people is um, drawing that distinction between, you know, a, a normal sense of. Um, uncertainty and anxiety, given the world that we're living in, um, versus whether this is um, the uh, developing traits of a mental illness or a disorder that might continue to linger and affect people. So I think it's a, um, it's a really good initiative. Yeah, no, it is good. And I love the fact that there's actually bums on seats, you know, as in the 90 dedicated clinicians, because a lot of the things that we've seen lately have been all these improvements to structures and improvements to websites and improvements to, um, to what do you call those support services like Lifeline and Beyond Blue, you know, the telephone support services. And they're all fantastic, but they're not actually clinical bums on seats. They're not psychologists sitting in chairs talking to people or psychiatrists assessing people or social workers doing assessments. They're not clinical bums on seats. And what we need more than anything we know is clinical bums on seats. All those other things are fantastic and we need those too. But unless we, um, you know, when we open the door to people and we answer the phone and we talk to them about their distress and we, we say they should get some help, we need somewhere for them to actually get them some help. So uh, hats off to the government once again, Jess. What's I mean, the training wheels. Training wheels. What's the story, Doolittle? How do people access these pop-up clinics? Do you need a mental health care plan or do you just rock up or how does it work? Brilliant question. One three hundred number. So what they are is they it's going to be a central number. So you ring the one three hundred number, and then what the government's doing is they've employed a whole lot of community services. So they're contracting community services to provide the actual services. So you'll go to the one three hundred number, and that'll pass you onto a community service that's actually employed two new psychologists in that your particular area, and they will provide the actual support. 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Dr. Moto has invited a special guest all the way from Darwin to join us this morning. Over to you, Moto. Thank you very much, Doolittle. Um, and uh, it's my um, great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Dr. David Chapman, consultant psychiatrist from Darwin in the Northern Territory. Um, Dr. Chapman is um, the director of psychiatry training for the whole of the Northern Territory. Um, and he's also the um, Northern Territory representative for the Faculty of Adult Psychiatry at the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, um, as well as the NT Rep for the ADHD Network at the College of Psychiatrists. Good morning, David, and thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Good morning to everybody. David, look, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, um, And um, just by way of explanation to the audience, um, uh, David is currently doing a sabbatical um, with us at the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre to learn a bit about um, women's mental health and gender-sensitive mental health. Um, and um, I also wanted to invite David to the studio today just to break a little bit of the Melbourne sort of still a bit wintry spring weather um, and um, hopefully bring uh, a bit of um, the beam of sunshine into the listeners' home this Sunday morning. So maybe just to start with, David, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what brought you to Australia and what brought you specifically to the Northern Territory? It's a very deep question. Um, I came to Australia because um, many, many, many years ago because I had an uncle who lived here from long before I was born, who sent me a very famous book called Song of the Snake by a gentleman called Eric Warren. And um, it intrigued me so much because the, the, the book was about the journeys up through the middle of Australia and across the top end. So I came partly to Australia to, to um, learn about that. And... Um, Worked for many years in Adelaide as a teacher and then decided to do medicine and somehow ended up in Darwin. And your accent, David, where is it originally from? Uh, it's from England, but um, my dad was a Cockney, so I, I have a very Cockney accent. I also sound, grew up about 30 miles away from um, where a very famous person who says, um, I have a coming plan, my lord. Um, spoke, so um, I also have an Essex accent as well. Broderick. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Is that, is that his name, Broderick? From, I've got a mental blank on the name of the show. Yeah, yeah, it's from, yeah, I have a mental blank too. Um, Someone's got to remember it. It's um, Rowan Atkinson, one of the most famous shows, different walls it was set in. Blackout up. Thank you. Our mental blank is cured by the youngest and most agile brain on the show. Back to you, Moto. <laughs> agile brain is definitely right. We're all struggling a little bit, aren't we, Doolittle, this morning? Um, and, um, David, so um, what distinct aspects of practising psychiatry and coordinating psychiatry training in Darwin do you find the most rewarding that's still keeping you there? Um. It's it, it's a very very small jurisdiction as as everybody probably knows and um, 
and our mental health services are very small and we don't have a lot of um, specialised areas, so we don't have psychiatry or neuropsychiatry. Um, yeah, so we, we, the, the, the mental health services field an enormously wide range of presentations. Some of them are extremely complex. And so that makes it very, very interesting. Um, and um, I also, we all work in very small teams. And so um, we have that joy and pleasure of working with a group of talented clinicians that we get on with. Um, so I think that, that's, that's why... Um, why I enjoy working there. And Darwin itself is a lovely place. Um, yeah. David, you know, I was up in Darwin myself recently doing a sabbatical, um, you know, the opposite to you. I was up in sunny Darwin. And uh, I tell you what, the things that it in, you know, the thing that impressed me a lot, although it doesn't fix your staff problem, is the massive infrastructure. And it struck me that Darwin, you know, con considering the size of the population, it's got an amazing hospital, an amazing cancer centre, the local government infrastructure, the parks, the bike tracks, everything, you know, it's quite amazing, I suspect, because it's, you know, it's, uh, it's supporting so much uh, of the top of Australia. Australia in terms of various stuff, but it doesn't help you with the recruitment drive, does it? You still, you know, whilst the hospital's amazing and it's got all this stuff, this great stuff, um, it, it, I guess the biggest challenge is human resources and then covering the broad area. Is that is that your impression? It, it's um, the, the, it, it comes in comes and goes. So some some years the recruitment's much better than others, um, but by and large, probably all the health services are. Um, have difficulty in getting people. Um, it's not just getting them, um, it's getting them to come and stay long enough to return the investment in training them, orientating them. Um, that's one of our big problems as a constant churn. Um, psychiatry training, we've been very, very fortunate. My predecessor, um, Dr Anne Patton, who was the director of training, set things um, in place and we have had a great deal of success in attracting trainee psychiatrists. So um, we're just fortunate, but in other areas, it's very difficult. And what have you found to be helpful, um, David, in terms of actually retaining um, staff in um, Darwin? You know, it might be medical staff, it might be psychiatry trainees, or it might be just healthcare staff in general, because I know this is an issue that um, the government contends with um, perennially, pretty much, um, and uh, just a little bit closer to home um, in the Metro Hospital um, where I work in Melbourne, um, one of our um, advanced trainees who's about to graduate and become a full-fledged psychiatrist, you know, she's a, a bonded um, a medical graduate, what that means is um, prior to um, starting medical school, they undertake to um, do some work in a regional area of need um, after they've attained their um, necessary qualifications, whether that's in general practice or in a um, area of specialty. So she's looking forward to, she secured a contract in far north Queensland and she's looking forward to make that life transition. Um, so this is something that's very recent on my mind. Um, but uh, what, what have you found to have worked in um, attracting and retaining people? I think the short, simple answer is word of mouth um, and... Um, um, providing a context in which people feel valued, uh, rewarded and welcomed. 
Um, it has to be said that Darwin is a very friendly place, has to be, because um, a lot of people there, their families are many, many thousands of kilometres away and it can be very lonely. So we, we tend to be a very social bunch. That helps because it, it, it makes people feel as though they're part of the local community. The territory is also very generous. Um, we give very good um, uh, pay structures. We have a lot of leave. We have extra leave over and above the rest of the country. We have more. Uh, uh, hang on, just stopping you there. How much are we talking? How much leave? Um, in in um, in the public health services, we get an extra two weeks over above the, the normal four weeks annual leave. So we get six weeks annual leave. We have more public holidays, I think, than any other jurisdiction. Um, and we have we, we, our organisation. We try and look after our trainees in particular. Um, it's, it's hard in other areas of health, um, perhaps nursing. We, we often provide um, access to accommodation for nursing staff that come up um, because it can be very difficult to find accommodation in Darwin at some times of the year. Other times of the year, it's easier. That all, that all sounds brilliant to me. Um, over to you, Training Wheels, and I know that, Doolittle, you also wanted to say something. I just wanted to... Um say, Dr. Chapman, you're doing a very nice impromptu recruitment drive on the air this morning. Um, but I will also second that I, I went to a conference in Darwin a few years ago and I met a few trainees up there in a different specialty at that time, but they all absolutely loved it and, you know, really couldn't fault living in Darwin at all. And I think in particular, a lot of people were saying that it's a great place to raise a family. It's got a lot of really family-friendly activities and um, like you said, the friendly culture up there is, you know, really, really great for people in that part in their lives. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about the medicine. So it sounds like the lifestyle is great. You get all this leave and everyone's really nice to you. But in terms of the medicine, what's what do you like about it up there? What's they don't work at all. They just spend their time on leave and um, hang out with each other and um, provide really good peer support and, you know, make friends. Sounds perfect. Yeah, it's true. But we also work very hard and uh, juniors work very long hours. Um, the medicine's fantastic. Um, it was one of the reasons I went up to Darwin to finish my medical studies. Um, We've been told that it was good and we found that was the case. Um, that a, a little story would be, as a medical student, I was told to go off and put in a cannula in the little old lady in the corner um, when I eventually graduated and became a registrar and looked after um, doctors from Melbourne who came up, none of them had ever learned how to put a cannula in. Um, so in Darwin, you're expected to do and learn by doing. Uh, you're a part of a team. You're not a hanger-on. Um, so you learn very, very quickly. And what about the mental health presentations? Are they different to the, what you see down south, you know, doing a sabbatical down here? Is it like, you know, if there's the hot weather cause any particular things or the fact that you've got <laughs> such a broad population, you've got to cover such huge areas? I think that the, in many cases, no, there's no difference. Um, the, the patients that I'm seeing at um, the research centre are extraordinarily complex and we get some of those, perhaps not as many as we would in as you do in Melbourne. Um, 
but the um, the differences would be we get all the same disorders. Um, it's often that they're overlain by other issues. So, for example, um, it's very common for an Aboriginal patient to present with just um, you know what looks like a schizophrenia or something. The problem is that they're also very deaf, and so disentangling the the history that is related to being deaf because you had an infection in childhood and disentangling the history related to the actual mental illness can be very challenging. Um, and again, that's what makes it interesting. Um, now, this is a... Um, this might be a bit of a broad um, question, but um, I think uh, you're well placed to answer it, David, just from your decades of experience stomping the pavement and having genuine skin in the game, right? But, um, you know, we talk a lot about um, um, the challenges of providing adequate mental health care to regional areas, particularly in um, our amongst for our Indigenous and um, um, Torres Strait Islander communities. With your experience as, as a clinician, what singular or, or you know, what, what um, ingredient or what can be done to actually make a meaningful impact in this space? I know it's a challenging question to ask, but complete blue sky view, what do you think from drawing from your experience, what would have helped in all these years? If, if I can start by saying the Northern Territory is as big as France, Germany and Spain combined, um, and um, probably more than half the Aboriginal population live in remote communities, an hour's flight by commercial flight from Darwin. So there is the, you know, to pinch a, a phrase, the tyranny of distance, the problem is um, is, do, is providing what um, the Indigenous communities want. Um, we unfortunately don't necessarily listen enough to what they have to say um, and we don't necessarily train the people that will live and work within those remote communities. So where, where there are um, mental health workers, Aboriginal mental health workers in the communities, things, services are much better provided than where they're not. Um, so I think a lot of it is, is acknowledging the, the culture, a lot of it is acknowledging um, distance, a lot of it is trying to train up um, Aboriginal people to treat their own people because they understand far better than we do. Um, try as we might, we're, it, it is difficult to um, work within a culture. That's a really fascinating insight, David, and certainly gives us plenty of um, food for thought. But you raise a very good point, you know, having that um, cultural grounding in the clinicians trying to um, intervene or trying to make a difference certainly does make plenty of good sense to me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
we're going to spend the rest of the show talking about a few things to do with the old COVID. You might have heard of it, a little infection going around, driving the whole world crazy, keeping us in lockdown, except for those moments when we have dreams that we're travelling and maybe misbehaving. Um, by the way, the roadmap comes out today. Now, I'm not going to talk about it because I haven't seen it yet, and I don't think it's announced yet, normally announced about midday. If you want to know our COVID numbers for today, they're actually pretty damn good in a sense. The Victorian COVID number is 507. Now, we've been, you know, 500, 500 for the last few days, and the rate's been growing incredibly slow, like at a rate of about 4%, which is a, a, an absolute sign that lockdown's working. You know, it's not doubling and tripling at the um, rate that Delta would if it was left unchecked. Um, our VAX numbers are starting to look good. We're at 43% double vaxxed and 70% um, roughly single vaxxed. Now, before we go into any other stuff, we want to hear from Dr. Training Wheels. Now, as I mentioned, Training Wheels, I think you're a second year resident and you're working at first year, sorry, uh, an intern still, a baby intern, and you're working at one of the COVID hospitals. So for those of you who don't realise, there's about five COVIDs that are COVID hospitals in Victoria at the moment, Royal Melbourne, Austin, Alfred, Monash, I forget, oh, Northern Hospital, and they've got COVID wards and SCOVID wards for suspected COVID. Um, so training wheels, tell us a little bit about what it's like on the grounds in a uh, COVID hospital. Yeah, I thought I'd talk a little bit about what it's like being there every day. And at the moment in particular, um, with, you know, we can have picnics now and vaccination rates are okay. I sort of feel like I'm living a bit of a double life at the moment. I've got this sort of, I've got some friends who live in the regions and they, you know, they can go to pubs and catch up with people and they're getting back to normal and you still can't have people at your house. So it's still a bit crap, but it's a bit better. So I've got sort of a bit of hope and optimism that things are getting better and the vaccination rates are pretty good. And like you said, Doolittle, the case numbers aren't skyrocketing. They're pretty stable. Maybe things are going to be all right. I had a picnic with my family yesterday. That was lovely. But then I go to work and it's just like this low-level dread all the time, like what's going to happen? This is going to last a long time. I'm not on a COVID ward myself at the moment, but a lot of my colleagues are getting redeployed. We've got two dedicated COVID wards now and a dedicated COVID ICU pod. And, there's you know, we're wearing our N95 masks and our face shields all the time. Um, and I just, yes, things are looking okay consider, compared with how bad they could be, but we do know that unvaccinated people are still getting very sick with this, and if case numbers aren't going to go backwards, probably, they might be stable for a while, they might not skyrocket, but we know we're not going for COVID zero anymore. So I do just have this low-level dread of the next few weeks and months and maybe even a year or so in the hospital is going to be hard work. Even if things are getting back to normal outside the hospital in our social lives and things, it's, uh, yeah, I'm sort of living these this dichotomous life at the moment. What about you, Moto and Doolittle? How are you feeling about it? Moto? Yeah, look, um, such a, um, you know, great point, Jess, and, you know, it is tricky to be living in these uncertain times that just sort of um, drags on a little bit. But um, I just feel it would be remiss of me to not um, give another massive shout out to all the people who are on the front line who are, you know, staffing the hospitals and putting in the long hours and, you know, caring for the patients. Um, you know, I was, as you know, I also work at um, one of the five um um designated COVID hospitals in Melbourne. And I was um, on call the last weekend. 
and I had to see um, a patient as, as a psychiatrist. I had to assess a patient who was suspected COVID. And I'm just astounded by how well the hospital um, coordinated and um, demarcated and quarantined a, a, a ward specifically for COVID and suspected COVID patients. So, you know, practically what it meant was, you know, I had to see this person. There was a number to call, which was the nurse in charge. Um, and um, she was obviously fully PPD'd up. And um, I saw her on the um, the telehealth screen and she would take an iPad on a, on a, on a little sort of a stand with wheels into the patient's room so that I can see the patient over telehealth, thereby minimizing exposure to um, staff members, even though I was also, I could also be fully PPD if I wanted to, but still, you know, I'm coming back to David's point about um, the, the tyranny of distance. On this occasion, um, that distance is actually what's going to keep staff members and, and patients safe, right? Um, and, you know, I was um, talking to the um, nurse in charge, again, this was last weekend, and I asked, you know, if um, some patients they might not tolerate or they might not have the cognitive capacity to um, engage in an assessment over telehealth, what happens then? Um, and, you know, they've got sort of designated red, zone, red zones and green zones on the ward, all trying to just create that barrier and create that distance um, between staff members and patients. And I just thought, man, you know, the amount of work that's gone into this and the amount of um, planning and double checking, triple checking, it's just astounding. So good work to all of you out there, including ourselves, um, I suppose, but good work to all of you out there who are just putting in all the hard yards and looking after patients. But, um Moto, though, of course, we can still assess patients face-to-face as psychiatrists. We can dress in PPE just as well as anyone, and we've been doing it for decades. I've been, you know, I've worked in infectious diseases for 20 years as a consultation liaison psychiatrist, and I regularly had to uh, do the full gear for the TB patients, for example. You know, so you had to be fully gowned and fully everything, and in you go, and you do your assessments. This was, of course, in the days before we had all the um, the options. And I, I'm like, I, I for my service, I also purchased some iPads, and, you know, we've got... Um, various options to do telehealth that if it's easy but if it's not if it's not um, the best clinical solution and we just don all our gear and we'll go and see the patients with COVID regardless just like any doctor just like the physicians we can dress up too um, as long as you've got the training and you know what you're doing it's not that hard it's pretty easy um, have you seen anyone uh, training wheels with COVID yet or have you you know like seen someone and then later got the text saying obviously not I assume you would have been furloughed you haven't seen anyone I'm assuming no confirmed cases. I did have one instance with a patient that we saw. We were wearing N95 masks, but I did. I f- forgot to wear my face shield that encounter. And For about- people who are at home on their radio, Training Wheels was just putting on her embarrassed look with her hand over him. <laughs> I know. I'll get in trouble. Um, I've done we- it too. Yeah, and we found it is very uncomfortable and it gets all foggy. And, look, I know I shouldn't complain, but it is not fun. Um we saw this patient and we spent quite a long time with her and I'm on a surgical specialty at the moment that's very much up in people's faces and in their mouths and a lot of aerosol generation happens and um, about half an hour after we saw her, we she got notified that she was a Tier 1 contact. Um, so that was sort of a little, we had a little scare with the team there that we might all get furloughed, but it turned out okay because she was negative and yada, yada. Anyway, no, I haven't, short answer is no, I haven't seen a COVID patient myself yet, but it, I think it's coming. 
I think it's coming. We're going to have more wards and there's, they'll need more staff and um, someone's got to be, you know, they've got to have junior doctors on the floor seeing patients and assessing them and writing up the fluids and, you know, listening to their hearts and lungs. Someone's got to do that. So, um Let's um, move on to some of the um, let's move on to some of the community issues that we're facing outside the hospital. So today, as I said, well, Friday night at eleven fifty nine was the beginning of a two tiered society. The first time in the whole thing, where um, a small but significant change occurred. If you're vaccinated, you can have five people meeting in an outdoor setting like a public park from two households, compared to only two if you're unvaccinated. Now we all know this is extending dramatically. It's going to extend to um, travel quarantine if you're you know you're vaccinated you can potentially do home quarantine it's going to extend to pubs clubs social events um, New South Wales everyone's flagged it um, now so far all the big concerns have been logistical you know who's going to check it how reliable will it be it'll be a government app and we all know the government couldn't organize a piss up in a brewery so you know how well is the app going to work can people um, can people fake the app etc 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 but what about the ethics team what about the ethics you know does anyone have any worries about um, moving into a society that's two-tiered, uh, Moto? I, I don't know about the ethics too little, but, um, you know, I'm double-vaxxed, right? And hearing what um, our guest, um, Dr. David, had, has had to say, I'm on the next flight to Darwin. I'm, I'm gone. I'm taking all my um, parasites, all my toxoplasmosis, everything in my gut, and, um, David, I'll see you there. You got any worries, trainer wheels? Your thoughts on it? Um, I worry what is going to happen you know, like you said, for now, the the changes and the sort of two-tier system is minor. You know, you can have a picnic with two people or five people. That's not a live or die sort of situation. But what if it comes to even travelling between suburbs or, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this is what will happen. I don't know what the roadmap is going to be, but there will be more significant differences for people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated. And for people who don't want to get vaccinated for any reason, I don't agree, but you know, people can make their decisions and have their opinions. And I, I, I wonder where it's going to lead, you know, how how are people going to respond to that? How is society going to function if there are people who remain stubbornly unvaccinated for whatever reason? I don't know. I don't know about the ethics either, but I, it's interesting. It's interesting times. Yeah, I think the, um, the the tricky bit will be in the logistics of how it's sorted out, as you say, especially for the people who can't get vaccinated. I mean, there's got to be exemptions for people who can't. Um, but And, of course, I think it's also important to remember that this is a transient state in the pathway to herd immunity. Once we get back to herd immunity, it's all over. And, and, uh, and also, of course, I think it's important to remember that this is a massive incentive for those who are vaccine hesitant on account of just haven't got around to it or they're just not sure and they haven't, you know, thought it through or discussed it with their healthcare professional so you know it's an amazing incentive for people so personally I'm all for it because I believe that you know whilst we're in this transient state of getting towards herd immunity then then why should people who are well vaccinated when their risks are way lower have the same restrictions as long as it's done in a fair manner as long as it's done in a way that's respectful for people who can't get vaccinated etc etc what about then moving on to the next big issue mandatory vaccines now again there's been a lot of talk about this in the media um uh and uh 
maybe I should go into some of the little rules first. So essentially the government's toying with the idea, but there are no strict federal rules yet. So the federal government hasn't done anything. It's all voluntary at this stage, although we know that the states have started to announce some mandatory vaccination. For example, the Victorian government has announced that construction workers um, across Victoria will need to show evidence of their to their employer that they have had their first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine by 11.59pm on the 23rd of September. I think that also extends to people who work in the aged care sector. So that's two um, groups have been told that they have to. Yeah, it has. I'm just looking at my notes. The acting chief health officer said there's a, uh, similar rules coming for aged um, residential care workers, but exemptions apply, you know, so for people who work in the sector but can't get vaccinated for whatever reasons. Um, thoughts so far? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one and I think part part of what sort of bothers me, I think, is that we've always had these sorts of rules. It's This isn't new. You know, there's been certain vaccination required for travel. For example, if you're travelling to South America, you've got to demonstrate your yellow fever immunity before you go. Um, if you work in hospitals, flu vaccine was compulsory as far as I'm aware or, you know, as close as it can be until now. Um this isn't new and I think maybe there's a bit of um, because there's so much fear in the community around COVID and then we know there's a lot of misinformation and everything's been so politicised maybe people are sort of getting a bit up in arms about things that actually aren't new and aren't that dramatic and they're not really impeding your freedoms that much ultimately it's a social good you're, you're protecting the community by getting vaccinated so I, I think compulsory vaccinations in certain industries is it makes sense well, I looked up the human rights law and it said, you know, because there's a whole lot of things that are, you know, you're not allowed to discriminate according to gender, um, disability, et cetera, et cetera. And vaccination status is not a protected attribute under the Equal Opportunity Act. So you can discriminate according to people on vaccine rights. And they said rules can be made as long as they fulfil basic anti-discrimination rules, such as not discriminating against those who cannot be vaccinated for medical reasons. But they point out there's no simple answer. And I know I was speaking to a lawyer yesterday. In fact, it was young Dr. Doolittle. Um, and uh, he was telling me their firm's already doing some work for community sporting agencies. Um, you know, people who run community sports about whether they can um, in, they can say people um, need to be vaccinated who play their sports because there's no clear rules. And I noticed that the MJA put out um, they put out some guidelines too, um, essentially saying that they thought that the direction would be lawful and reasonable. Of course, again, accepting those who can't have it. Um, and the federal and they also pointed out that the federal government has a limited but available powers to enact compulsory vaccination for high risk workers under the Biosecurity Act. And whilst there is variation amongst the states and territories, compulsory vaccination is allowed for in certain places, like Victoria and WA already have some rules in place. So sort of we're, we're sort of getting there on the vaccination. Any other comments, team? It's a tricky one. Could I just say that I think um, we need to take a step back and look at things like smallpox, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, the flu jab. Um, they're normalised um, and, and people accept them readily and by and large, large proportions of the population um, accept them without question. Um, so I think, um, as uh, Trainer Wills pointed out, there's been far too much media hype and misinformation about COVID. Um, what we need to do is get it back to being like it's like a form of flu. 
Um, it's a nasty form of flu, but nevertheless, it's not that much different. And we can create a normalised acceptance of probably annual jabs. Don't forget, don't forget, though, we've had vaccine hesitancy for decades. The main one was... Um, was measles, measles vaccine hesitancy. Now, measles vaccine hesitancy wasn't so much based on freedom. It was based on misinformation that came from a doctor in the UK who published some bullshit studies um, that turned out to be false and he ended up going up before the English equivalent of the medical board and moving countries. But um, so we've had vaccine hesitancy for years, but the issue is it's been vaccine hesitancy in illnesses that had herd immunity. So it wasn't such a big deal. Whereas now we've got vaccine hesitancy in an illness that doesn't have herd immunity. So your vaccine hesitancy can harm your neighbour and your distant neighbour, et cetera, et cetera, because you lead to the spread. So, um, uh, so I'm with you. I, you, know, I, you know, it probably needs to be a bit harsher, which probably brings me on to the last issue that I wanted to get your opinions on. And this was what I've broadly entitled the heavy hand of the law. Now, you know, because, you know, as distinct from, for, for example, the measles vaccine, which was bar largely based on misinformation, a lot of the vaccine hesitancy in the um, COVID community comes from... Um, people who have a very strong belief in freedom and value freedom above other risks like, say, COVID. And so there are a lot of them, not all of them, some of them are arguing on wacky conspiracy theories and all sorts of nonsense, but some of them are arguing on the basis of freedom. And it brings us into this issue of, you know, how heavy-handed should the law be? Like, for example, yesterday we saw the police, you know, blocking public transport and hundreds of police on the street to block a protest, which I'm not criticising, I'm just I'm raising the issue. But I'd also like to link it to an article I read two weeks ago about um, the use of QR codes. And it was an article about how a number of state police across Australia have accessed QR code data to solve crimes when the QR code data was purely supposed to be used and prior to the QR code coming in, we were absolutely promised. There was a lot of digital you know, on, uh, lawyer experts talking about how the big risk was that the police would start to use this health data for other reasons. And, you know, we had this little article. It hardly got much coverage, but, you know, we did... You know, there have been police, including in Victoria, but also Queensland, and WA who were accessing QR data for, to solve crimes instead of for its health consequences training wheels? I think when, you know, if we look back to, say, 9-11 and the war on terror, when there's a huge kind of global event that's happening and it captures everyone's imagination and everyone's terrified, it can be easy for governments and police to increase their powers in a kind of subversive way. And we know since 9-11, for things like our privacy has been eroded significantly. And it was easy for governments to justify it at the time because, well, you know, it's the war on terror and this is what we have to do to prevent terrorism. Um, similarly, during COVID, I think, you know, the, the reach of the police and the, and the government in terms of restricting people's movements and rights has changed significantly, I think it's fair to say, over this time. Whether that's right or wrong at the moment is I'm not going to comment on. I think definitely there's a place for it. And like you said, Doolittle, it's it's temporary and it's transient. But I think some healthy criticism it can't go astray. Yeah, fair points. Look, um, you know, my sense is the same that, you know, we've got to keep an eye on it. But at the end of the day, whilst I was, whilst I cracked the joke before that the government couldn't organise a piss up in a brewery, at the end of the day, we're doing incredibly well in Australia on the back of all of our governments. And, you know, no matter what you think of their techniques, we've got incredibly low rates, our death rate's low, our spread's been low, our vaccination's not as fast as it could have been, but it's not been bad. So, you know, all in all, um, we're not going too bad. Hey, uh, it's time for the wind up and thank yous, though. Special thanks to Dr. David Chapman for 
for uh, um, telling us all about life in Darwin, to uh, Panel Beater for everything in the studio, Training Wheels and, um, and Moto for joining me. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.